Listener supported. WNYC Studios. You're about to hear a recording of a live radio program. It's called Indivisible. You can listen live and call in four nights a week on public radio stations around the country or at indivisibleradio.com. You can also join the conversation with hashtag indivisibleradio or leave us a voicemail at indivisibleradio.com. Subscribe now so you don't miss a thing. Okay, here's the show. This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. From the studios of WNYC in New York, I'm Charlie Sykes, and this is Indivisible, public radio's live national call-in show for the first 100 days of the Trump administration, and we are now 62 days into the Trump presidency. Trust me, it felt like 62 months. Uh, Tonight we're going to talk about the hearings on Supreme Court nominee Neil Gorsuch, but and, and this is really the remarkable thing. Even though this is undoubtedly one of those decisions with the longest lasting implications for the country, it might actually not be among the top five or six news stories of the week. I mean, think about it. Just Monday, FBI Director James Comey drops this bombshell. I have been authorized by the Department of Justice to confirm that the FBI, as part of our counterintelligence mission, is investigating the Russian government's efforts to interfere in the 2016 presidential election. And that includes investigating the nature of any links between individuals associated with the Trump campaign and the Russian government, and whether there was any coordination between the campaign and Russia's efforts. And Comey and other officials also shot down Trump's tweeted allegations that President Obama had ordered a wiretap of his successor, although just today, chairman of the House Intelligence Committee says that some members of the Trump transition team might have been incidentally caught up in some foreign legal uh, foreign surveillance. Um, Chairman Nunes held numerous press conferences, rushed to the White House to brief the president. But uh, apparently, as of right now, most members of Congress still really don't know what he's talking about. Um, Other big news of the week, Ivanka Trump gets an office in the West Wing. You know that was going to happen, right? There was a terrorist attack at the British Parliament that left five dead and at least 20 injured. The Secretary of State planned to miss his first NATO meeting and planned to go instead to Russia a few days later. Uh, and then there's the political elephant in the room. Do Republicans have enough votes to pass the repeal and replacement of Obamacare tomorrow uh, within the next 24 hours? Look, they have promised they would do that for the last four elections. They've had seven years to come up with something. So you would think that they'd have this figured out by now, because if they don't have the votes tomorrow... I mean, the results would be dramatic. I was actually trying to think about it before the show. You know, what other president in his first 100 days was defeated on his first major legislative initiative? This stuff does not happen. This would cast doubt on whether the Republicans are actually capable of governing and it would be a, a huge blow to Trump's presidency in the in the first uh, 60 some days um, and obviously put it uh, it in jeopardy much of the rest of the agenda, including including tax reform. So all of this overshadowed what could have been one of the Trump administration's most successful events, the Gorsuch hearings uh, over the years. If you're as old as I am, you've seen this become a kabuki dance. Um, where senators try to get specific answers and commitments out of judges who then try to avoid answering those questions. Well, we are going to try to break all of this down, and we are loaded. We are loaded with experts from the right, left, and the center. Um, Joining me 
uh, and I appreciate this very much, Randy Barnett, who is the Carmack Waterhouse Professor of Legal Theory at Georgetown Law and the director of Georgetown's uh, Center for the Constitution. His most recent book is Our Republican Constitution, Securing the Liberty and Sovereignty of the People. Um, returning guest, Jeffrey Rosen, President and Chief Executive Officer of the National Constitution Center and a professor uh, at George Washington University Law School. His most recent book is a profile of Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis. Uh, and uh, joining me live in studio here in uh, New York, uh, L.A. Mastal, editor of Above the Law and the host of a new show from WNYC Studios called Persuade Me. He's also the legal editor for WNYC's More Perfect. So if you want to engage in this conversation, give us a call at 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. So first of all, uh, good evening, gentlemen. Uh, Professor Barnett, thank you for Hi, joining Kelly. us. How are you doing? How are I, you doing? I am doing well. And Jeffrey Rosen, thanks for joining me again. I appreciate it very much. It's wonderful to be back. And uh, Elliot, it's uh, good, good to meet you. Nice to meet you. All right. Well, let's just jump right in here. Um, first of all, you know, we are now, we've had, um, three days of, three days of hearings. How do you think, and let's, let's, let's start with you, Randy Barnett. How, how do you think Judge Corsich is doing and has the public learned anything valuable about his legal philosophy? Uh, well, thanks, Charlie. I'm so grateful that you didn't ask me questions about all the other news items in your setup because I was not going to know much about those things. I'm happy to talk about this. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I'm not sure every anyone else on the show today is going to disagree with me when I say that these judicial nomination hearings um, have become genuinely uh, empty or devoid of content uh, because, um, as I explained in a in a in a magazine piece. Um, uh, they, the, the, candidate, the nominees starting, uh, well, for some time now, both Democrats and Republican nominees have figured out a kabuki uh, ritual by which they don't really have to answer the questions in any way that will commit themselves to anything in the future. And uh, Judge Gorsuch has, uh, has executed that strategy flawlessly, um, uh, as, have, as did Elena Kagan before him and uh, Sonia Sotomayor and Roberts and Alito. They've all done the same thing, and he's doing it, too. Let's just talk about his, his judicial philosophy, and I want to ask you, uh, Jeff, Jeffrey Rosen, you know, people are, are trying to put everybody into a box, you know, whether he's a conservative judge or he's a textualist or an originalist. How, how much is Neil Gorsuch like Antonin Scalia? How is he like Scalia, and how is he different from Scalia? So I'll answer that, but I do want to uh, disagree respectfully with my great friend, uh, Randy Barnett, just to say that I don't think it's entirely kabuki theater. I know that that's the axiom, but there are nuggets of substance that always emerge from these hearings, and we've had them today. In terms of the differences with Justice Scalia, we saw a passion for the separation of powers from Judge Gorsuch, as he described it both horizontally horizontally and vertically, that seemed to make him more of a Jeffersonian than the Hamiltonian Justice Scalia. Justice uh, Hamilton, the rap star of the moment, is in favor of a broad national government. Justice Scalia had deferred to administrative agencies in many cases, but all of this wonderful wonky discussion of the Chevron doctrine, I know it's it's hard to follow, but I really want listeners to go back and read the transcripts or something because you can learn so much. He's talking about his concurrence in the Gutierrez case with uh, Senator uh, Whitehouse, and he's describing um, how he believes that 
the Administrative Procedure Act, and in particular Section 706, says you defer to agencies on questions of facts but not of law, and that's why he thinks that the court has been too deferential to agencies on questions of law. And then he gave, in response to uh, one of the senators, this very passionate defense of why it's so important to check the president uh, and to keep each of the branches within their constitutional roles in order to protect liberty. I think those tones should have gladdened uh, Randy's heart. Um, So basically, to answer your question, I think he's more libertarian than Justice Scalia when it comes to questions involving regulation. We saw also uh, on questions involving the uh, Fourth uh, Amendment searches and seizures, he was really quite uh, passionate. And he's also likely to be more liberal than Justice Scalia on antitrust law. That came up in discussions with Senator Franken and others. And Neil Gorsuch Uh, represented plaintiffs in antitrust. He won the biggest antitrust verdict in American history at the time against American Tobacco Company for its monopolistic practices. And while Justice Scalia was quite deferential to big corporations, Judge Gorsuch, with with his litigator's perspective, might really be more suspicious of what my hero, Louis Brandeis, so famously called the curse of bigness. So this Hmm. is why perhaps some empirical studies have found that Judge Gorsuch would be to the right of Justice Scalia on some issues, mostly involving regulation, but probably on the left in cases involving searches and seizures, and just seems to have a very strong view that judges independently should enforce constitutional limitations, and that is a conclusion that might gladden the hearts of progressives when it comes to checking President Trump. Well, well I want to play one of the things that he said about judges when, he, when he's asked about what judges do in terms of these political continuum. There's no such thing as a Republican judge or a Democratic judge. We just have judges in this country. Elie Mastal, does anyone believe that anymore? If there was no such thing as a Democratic judge or Republican judge, then Merrick Garland would be the ninth Supreme Court justice right now. Clearly and obviously, um, we live in a world where Republicans are going to nominate a certain kind of justice that they think is going to vote with them most of the time. It won't be all of the time. I think uh, Rosa makes a really great, good point about that. It won't be all of the time, but it will be most of the time. And clearly, Democrats nominate progressive judges that they believe will vote with them most of the time. That's that's how this game is played. And for Gorsuch to sit there and say he doesn't, he might not see a Democratic judge or a Republican judge, but everybody else does. And if he and if he doesn't think that that's the case, then he needs to explain why he's able to sit there today. Okay, Randy Barnett, do you agree or disagree with that? I think I just I think I agree with everything Ellie said. Ellie, mark this down. Would you put this down on the calendar? I think I agreed with everything you just said. <laughs> Woo! Um, uh, I mean, I think uh, Senator Whitehouse. Uh, I think it was Senator Whitehouse at one point who said, "Hey, look, I don't see the difference between uh, Garland and uh, Gorsuch." And my reaction to what he said was, "Well, then you should vote for Gorsuch then, if there's really no difference." Of course, there's a difference. Um, and where I, I I I would still agree to some extent with Jeff is. I don't think we learned anything from the hearings that we didn't already know about Gorsuch. It's where Gorsuch is on the record, where, as he has been on the record on Chevron, that he asked, had to answer questions about Chevron. And I believe he defended his views on that extremely well. But he only really had to talk about Chevron because we already knew he had views skeptical of Chevron, which, he's, which he defended. So I just don't think that the hearings have, uh, have produced any new information about Gorsuch. But I agree, it's been a good exercise for the general public. And, um, and I, I, we'll get to the originalism point, or Charlie, you're yes. free to ask me that now if you want to. Well, I just want to uh, jump in on yeah. Chevron for a second, because first of all, I haven't gotten to say it, which is fun. But, <laughs> you know, I also want listeners to understand that when, when, when uh, lawyers and justice 
justices are talking about liberal conservative. We're not always talking about it in the same way that we talk about it in politics. Chevron is actually a great example of this because when Chevron came out, and Chevron is this rule that says when Congress makes a law, the agencies get to decide what the law means as opposed to judges. That's, that's the most basic way of putting it. When that decision came out in the 80s, that was viewed as a very conservative opinion. Giving Chevron deference was a very conservative opinion. Why? Well, because in the 80s, Reagan ran all the agencies. And liberals liked it when unelected judges would come in and tell Reagan's agencies, no, you got the law wrong, sir. Um, so when Chevron came out, it was very conservative to say, like, no, let's look at the agencies. Now, fast forward 20, 30 years. Now, generally, we think of the agencies as the scientific, let's say, backbone of part of our uh, executive branch. Um, Democrats haven't been in control of the agencies for a while. Now, all of a sudden, giving Chevron deference is thought to be very liberal and conservatives want less Chevron deference and more, so, but, it, but it does. It does mean, though, that that a Justice Gorsuch, you know, might be willing to push back more on the administrative state. Isn't that the case, Randy Barnett? Oh yeah, and I think this is significant. And I again, I want to agree with what Ellie just said too. I think that, that this Chevron doctrine was a doctrine that that came about during the Reagan administration, and it, and when the Reagan administration was trying to deregulate. And to the extent the Trump administration tries to deregulate, uh, there are going to be judges around the country who are going to be able to second-guess those agencies better now if, in fact, the Supreme Court does reconsider Chevron, which, of course, it hasn't happened yet. So, um, yes, this would allow uh, a more pushback against the, uh, the uh, Trump administration. Okay. Now, I, I want to get – we are going to come back to defining terms like originalism and textualism because we're hearing a lot about this. But let's, let's jump to the, the elephant in the room – I think I've used that phrase not too many times um, – that has been the, the issue that has dominated so many of these hearings – Four decades now, uh, the the issue of Roe versus Wade, and of course, uh, uh, th- this is the exchange between uh, Lindsey Graham and uh, Judge Gorsuch. Had you ever met President Trump personally? <clears throat> Not until my interview. In that interview, did he ever ask you to overrule Roe v. Wade? No, Senator. What would he have done if he if he had asked? Senator, I would have walked out the door. It's not what judges. Do. Okay. They don't do it at that end of Pennsylvania Avenue, and they shouldn't do it at this end either, respectfully. Okay, Jeffrey Rosen, what did you think of the way that he handled the, the question about Roe versus Wade? Well, here I do think that he dodged as elegantly as previous nominees. He said to Senator Grassley that Roe is a precedent of the Supreme Court. It's been reaffirmed. The reliance interests are important. A good judge will consider precedent. When asked about Griswold, he said that's a 50-year-old precedent. And when pressed by the Democrats, yes, but do you agree with it as a constitutional matter, he wouldn't say anything more than it's a precedent. I wrote a book about precedent. He said it was a doorstop several times. And he didn't in any way commit himself to affirming it. I thought more interestingly on Roe is the really substantive discussion of his book about natural law, which if read as a constitutional argument could seem to suggest that the taking of life is always and everywhere Mm -hmm. wrong. And there he said, I really was just talking as a moral commentator, not as a constitutional judge. He even endorsed assisted suicide laws passed by his own state, Colorado, and seemed to walk away essentially from any broader Mm -hmm. constitutional implications of his natural law musings, despite the value and efforts of, of Democrats to, to pin him down. So he, he did not, uh, I don't think that uh, defenders of Roe should be reassured or, or opponents 
especially gladdened by anything he said. He was just repeating uh, mm-hmm. not nostrums about the the importance of considering president when the when the opportunity well, and, arose. And, and, and he did say this about president. I want to play this and again get uh, Ellie your, your response on this. And I would tell you that Roe versus Wade decided in 1973 is a precedent of the United States Supreme Court. It has been reaffirmed. The reliance interest considerations are important there. And all of the other factors that go into analyzing precedent have to be considered. It is a precedent of the United States Supreme Court. It was reaffirmed in Casey in 1992 and in several other cases. So a good judge will consider it as precedent of the United States Supreme Court worthy as treatment of precedent like any other. Okay, that, that, that sounds like a rather strong endorsement of the status quo. Elliot Mistong, yeah, what do you I got, I've got a technical point and a larger point. The technical point is really quickly, um, this fight isn't about Roe. This fight is about Planned Parenthood v. Casey. And I think that Chris Coons' questioning about Casey tr- tried a little bit better to kind of get into what Gorsuch thinks. I don't think Roe is, is up for being overturned anytime soon. But Casey, which is really the operating standard of abortion in this country, mm-hmm. that, that could be attacked. Um, and I, I, I wouldn't trust Gorsuch if, if I, if, from a pro-choice uh, perspective, Gorsuch it, it worries me. But there's a larger point here, right? And it goes from the, from the first clip you played. Um, Donald Trump stomped around this country saying, I will have a litmus test and I will only appoint judges that will, up, will uphold, will overturn Roe. Hillary Clinton stomped around this country talking about how she had a litmus test um, in favor of upholding Roe. Now, Donald Trump wins and Gorsuch says... There was no litmus test. Somebody was lying. I think I know who. But the point that I that I just think people need to understand is that this is why presidential candidates saying I'm going to have a litmus test is so bad. Um, this is actually the first election that we had where both candidates were talking about litmus tests. That's wrong. And so if Trump... If Trump wants to go back to his voters and say, I did what I promised, I gave you a judge that's going to uphold, that's going to overturn Roe, while Gorsuch is sitting there saying that I can't tell you that mm-hmm. right now, we have to be able to say, uh, President Trump, that wasn't a, that wasn't a campaign promise hel- uh, yeah. held. Okay, we only have about a minute here. Uh, Randy Barnett, your thoughts on how we answer the question on Roe versus Wade? Well, it turns out he will answer hypothetical questions after all. Mm-hmm. What would you do if Trump had asked you that? So he does answer mm-hmm. hypothetical questions. Um, I, be- I credit that he was not asked the question. I credit that uh, that people on the right generally think that he's going to be skeptical of uh, abortion rights. And uh, we're going to have to see how that plays out. Uh, there's a lot of room to move when it comes to the reasonable regulation of abortion, just as there is on the reasonable regulation of firearms. Um, okay, when we come back, we have to take a little break. Um, I, I, I want to share with you a, a, a piece uh, that appeared in the Washington Examiner that said that on Trump's travel ban, the executive order, Gorsuch might actually be more likely to oppose it than Merrick Garland. And I want to see what, what our panel thinks about this. Now, you're listening to Indivisible Public Radio's National Conversation about America in a Time of Change. I'm Charlie Sykes, and we're talking with Randy Barnett, Ellie Mastal, and Jeffrey Rosen. We'll hear more from them and get to your calls after the break. Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com slash indivisible.
Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier, to find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is Indivisible, Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. This is Charlie Sykes at WNYC, and I'm here with Randy Barnett, who teaches legal theory at Georgetown University, Jeffrey Rosen of the National Constitution Center, and Ellie Mastal, editor of Above the Law. We are also taking your calls. Our phone number is 844-745-8255. That's 844-745-TALK. Um, Randy Barnett, I, I, I believe, if I, if I remember correctly, uh, that you tweeted out a link to uh, this piece by uh, Ilya Shapiro, um, who speculated that, that on the issue of uh, Trump's executive order travel ban, that Gorsuch was more likely to oppose it than Garland. This is what uh, uh, Shapiro reg- uh, wrote. He said, regardless of what ultimately happens to Trump's executive order on immigration, um, an irony of the political debate over the parallel Supreme Court nomination is that Neil Gorsuch would be more likely to rule against the government than Merrick Garland would have been. Do you agree with that, Professor Barnett? Yeah, I do think that one of the concerns that I would have had about my classmate Merrick Garland becoming a justice, and I have the highest opinion of him and his character and abilities, is that he is a former federal prosecutor, and his record does suggest a tremendous deference um, to the federal government and to prosecutors and to federal law enforcement. Um, so I would expect um, uh, a lot of deference from Merrick Garland. And then it's a question of whether Neil Gorsuch has left deference. And I think possibly he does. So um, I can't predict the future, but I would say that if I had to bet, I would probably bet where Ilya bets. Okay. Well, what, what, do, what do you think, uh, Jeffrey Rosen? Well, Randy just tweeted out in the middle of the show, so far there's way too much agreement. Yes, I'm, I'm working on that. Jeff and I <laughs> Ellie have to be less reasonable, and here I do have to agree with him. And Ilya's piece is quite striking. He cites two cases where Gorsuch not only ruled in favor of an illegal immigrant petitioner, but did so because he thought that the process by which the uh, immigrant was disadvantaged wasn't fair. And what was really interesting in the uh, Robles case, he cited principles of equal protection and due process to say the more an agency acts like a legislator, the closer it comes to the norm of legislation. That theme really emerged strongly in the hearings. I was so struck yesterday when Judge Gorsuch said, above the Supreme Court carved in Vermont, not Colorado marble, is the radical promise of equal protection of the law. And several times he very powerfully talked about the the radical need to enforce equal protection and due process norms, even when they favored illegal immigrants and might rule against the executive. And both Ilya and Randy, I think, are correct that Judge uh, Garland is, is, is more deferential to the executive. So so here is a case where his Jeffersonian skepticism might indeed favor. OK, um, I, I got to work on all this agreement here. So 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 <laughs> Ellie Mistal, um, among your many, many, many um, colorful tweets, um, <laughs> you actually uh, noted that uh, Judge Gorsuch had brought up the dissent to the Korematsu case, which is 
as, as every school child knows, was the Supreme Court <laughs> deci- decision um, upholding the the internment of Japanese during the war. I think a lot of us look back on that as you know as a humanitarian disaster, but the Supreme Court did hold it up. And you wrote, Gorsuch brings up the dissent to Korematsu, even though dollars to donuts, he would have voted with the bigoted majority in that case. Because he... Defend that. Because here's what it is. The th- and I agree that Gorsuch is uh, skeptical of executive power. But the issue at Kormatsu was really whether or not we were in a time of war and whether or not in wartime the president has extraordinary powers. Now, if you listen closely to the hearing, they actually got, I think it was Graham, actually got Gorsuch to admit shocking to me that we are in a time of war, it is an unconventional war, and kind of all precautions must be taken because it's wartime. Well, if it's wartime, that's exactly Kormatsu. And if it's wartime, that's what Trump is going to be pushing when, he, when, when they get to the Supreme Court with this. That's what Trump is going to be pushing down with the Muslim ban, that we are in a time of war and thus extraordinary deference must be given to not just the executive, but to our kind of military planners. That was the key of Kormatsu. And I, and I, am, and I am concerned that Gorsuch was, it was willing to volunteer um, his belief of what state of war yeah. we're at um, during the confirmation so, hearing. So is Franklin Delano Roosevelt a bigot? Yeah. Oh, oh really? Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. Now uh, towards towards Japanese citizens, of course. So Randy Barnett, it, it certainly sounds to me like Ellie Mistel is disagreeing with you <laughs> on 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 no. the question of what a judge Gorsuch would do on something like the travel ban. Do you think that Gorsuch would have voted to uphold that decision to intern Japanese during World War II? No, what we have today, I mean, I, I agree, I want, I'll agree that you know, saying that it's war means that it's going to be, there's going to be more deference to executive action. I, I myself agree with that, actually. But then again, we have an equal protection clause. Um, and what was really at issue in Korematsu with respect to the equal protection clause, which remember, Korematsu is the source of the phrase, um, uh, not strict scrutiny, but no, someone else can remind me. Uh, I think, no, I it's think strict it was scrutiny. I think case. it was strict scrutiny. I think you're right there. Yeah, okay. So, um, and uh, uh, the problem was there was a, one of factual uh, mis- uh, dis- disagreement about what the threat that was being caused internally. And in fact, the government, as we now know, was lying to the court um, uh, about what the threat posed by American citizens of Japanese descent was. So I think the case would come out completely different uh, under the equal protection analysis that just Gor- Justice, a Justice Gorsuch would have absolutely no trouble uh, applying. I can't imagine the government lying to us about the nature of the threat in this administration. Well, Je- Jeffrey Rosen, what do you think? There was another thing that was going on in Korematsu, and that's that Congress had approved the internment of Japanese-American citizens, shamefully so. By contrast, the court struck down uh, the same day as Korematsu a separate internment program that Congress hadn't approved. And Judge Gorsuch cares a lot about that because he keeps citing, and he did in the confirmation hearings, Justice Robert Jackson's concurrence in the steel seizure case. And that's another great concurrence for listeners to check out because it's so beautifully written. And Jackson, who Gorsuch has been nominated to succeed was the most beautiful writer on the court in the 20th century. Hmm. And Jackson basically said, when the president is acting with congressional support, his power is at its zenith. When he's acting in the face of congressional disapproval, his power is at its nadir. And when Congress hasn't spoken, he's in a zone of twilight, (laughs) where his power isn't clear. And I think Judge Gorsuch, who's such a uh, institutionalist uh, and cares so much about uh, role, would analyze the case in that way and 
Ely raises an interesting question of whether the Trump administration will make an argument that it hasn't yet pressed in the lower court that um, wartime deference should apply. But if they do, I would imagine Judge Gorsuch would be would look for the source of statutory authorization for the supposed war that justifies the ban and would look for what Congress has said on the matter. And he might well be moved by the idea that the statutory countries that the Obama administration singled out weren't endorsed by Congress uh, with a willingness to keep people out of the country. Uh, now, since we're on the issue of the travel ban, I don't know whether uh, the you, you three gentlemen have read this piece in, in the, on the blog, uh, Lawfare, The Revolt of the Judges, What Happens When the Judiciary Does Not Trust the President's Oath by Benjamin Wittes. Have you, have you read this, mm-hmm. any of you? Um, well, and, I've, and, skimmed and, I've skimmed it. And, and, and it, the, the, the analysis, it's a very, very lengthy piece that you know talks about uh, the jurisprudence behind the judge's decision to uh, you know, put a hold on the executive order. And, and it comes to this rather remarkable paragraph. But there is a third possibility in why the judges are ruling the way they are, and we should be candid about it. Perhaps everything these judges are saying is, is right as a matter of law in the regular order, but there is an unexpressed legal principle functionally at work here. That President Trump is a crazy person <laughs> whose oath of office large numbers of judges simply don't trust, and to whom, therefore, a lot of normal rules of judicial conduct do not apply. And I think that uh, you and I, uh, Professor Rosen, talked about this uh, some weeks back. Whether or not we are in a position right now where, in fact, there is kind of a revolt of the judges, this attack on the judges, this criticism of the judges is creating a backlash. Do you, do you think that there's I mean, your, your reaction to, to, uh, to that statement that, that maybe there are some judges who are basically kind of taking this out on Trump? I think saying that the judges think he's a crazy person may be too strong, but the idea that the president's attacks on judges in very personal, venomous terms right after they issue decisions may have steeled their nerves and made them determined to prove their independence does not seem implausible to me. In ordinary times, the second travel ban, which omitted the explicit religious classifications that doomed the first, might have gotten more deference. Uh, But the fact that it was so quickly struck down by three district judges may be a sign of the climate in which these cases are being decided. The fact that the Ninth Circuit, the 28 judges on the Ninth Circuit, refused to rehear the case, but five judges, led by the great libertarian Judge Alex Kaczynski, such a wonderful defender of liberty, he, he wanted to defer to the president here and said the precedent's ordinarily counsel in favor of presidential deference. If the great libertarian Judge Kaczynski said that, that's a good description of the uh, sort of consensus state of the law when it comes to presidential power. And the fact that district judges are ruling differently may indeed suggest that the president's attacks are backfiring. Yo, you mess with the bulls, you're going to get the horns. Okay. And I think (laughs) Trump... Thanks for... That's a better way of saying it. Thank you. That was a lot shorter. (laughs) (laughs) I think Trump is feeling that across the board, right? Um, He's he's not been very nice to Congress. He's having trouble with his health care law. He's not been really nice to the intelligence community. He's having troubles there. He's not been very nice to the judiciary. He's having troubles there. Um, Trump is learning that he's not an emperor. And, and uh, Judge Gorsuch, uh, Gorsuch uh, addressed that uh, in, in his testimony as well. Let's play that cut. When you attack the integrity or honesty or independence of a judge, their motives, as we sometimes hear, Senator, I know the men and women of the federal judiciary. A lot of them. I know how hard their job is, how much they often give up to do it, the difficult circumstances in which they do it. It's a lonely job, too. I'm not asking for any crocodile tears or anything like that. I'm just saying I know these people and I know how decent they are. And when anyone 
criticizes the honesty or integrity, the motives of a federal judge. Well, I find that disheartening. I find that demoralizing because I know the truth. Randy Barnett, your thoughts about the, about w- whether or not there is uh, there are federal judges who are pushing back and, uh, b- and basically Judge Gorsuch calling out uh, calling out Donald Trump for his uh, his language. This accusation that a federal official is not adhering to their oath of office um, that, that accusation can cut both ways. I don't think you are going to. I Ben Wittes is a very reasonable guy, but this is th- his piece and pieces like this is part of a concerted and extremely dangerous maneuver on the part of progressives to question the legitimacy of a duly elected president and thereby and there and and try to undercut what i consider to be the peaceful transfer of power so not only must there be peacefulness with respect to the peaceful transfer of power there must also be a transfer and it's arguments like this that go to the legitimacy of the president of the united states who was duly elected under the rules in effect um um that that threaten um one of the most basic principles of our democratic republic, and uh, I think they're playing an extremely dangerous game with rhetoric like this. Let's go. Uh, let's go to the phones uh, for a call. Get, get, we have uh, jam phone lines as we usually do. Let's go to uh, Forest Lake, Minnesota. Randy, uh, you're on Indivisible. Good evening. Thanks for calling in. Thank you. Uh, my concern is that the Republicans had an illegitimate stoppage of uh, um, Merrick Garland and. As this process goes on, it pains me. I, uh, um, this man has uh, uh, tremendous uh, skill in front of these hearings. But I think no matter how good he is, he'll always be known as the illegitimate justice on the court. Uh, so, so you you, you are challenging yeah, legitimacy. Okay, let's 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 throw this. Up. You know, um, Ellie, you have written rather extensively about this. You think that the Democrats should not be talking about Gorsuch; they should be still talking about Merrick Garland. Is yeah, I, I think that the Democrats have actually coughed up the ball here um, because they made this confirmation hearing they lost a normal, the election. A normal co- no, not because they lost the election, mm-hmm. but because they made this confirmation hearing normal when we're actually doing doing a, a, an amazingly abnormal time. So, if I had been a Democratic senator, and I'll note I'm not, mm-hmm. but if I had been one, my first question would have been, are you Merrick Garland? Why aren't you Merrick Garland? Why isn't Merrick Garland sitting here? What is it? Why do you think, do you think that Merrick Garland was treated fairly? Do you think that there is a cutoff at which point the president is no longer allowed to appoint a Supreme Court nominee? When is the cutoff? Where's the textual? Ba- I would just go down the list. And after I was done, I would say I'm reserving the next 15 minutes of my time to just read Merrick Garland's resume okay, into now, the record. Je- Je- Jeffrey Rosen, th- this is, I, I get a lot of this from, from liberals, from, from Democrats, that they are just not prepared to move on from Merrick Garland. What's your response to that? I understand the frustration. I heard it in the senator's voices, and I think that Merrick Garland should have gotten a hearing. But we are where we are. These are the politics. And the the question of whether it's a sensible thing to blow up the filibuster, we'll find out next week. I'm not going to presume to offer political advice. But on the question of whether uh, Judge Garland, uh, Judge Gorsuch, if he's confirmed, will be viewed as illegitimate, my mind went back to the example of Hugo Black. Such an interesting example, because he's confirmed to the court, Senator from Alabama, who FDR appoints almost to stick it to Congress, because he's an economic populist, and he realizes they can't reject him. And soon after 
he gets on the court, it's revealed that he's been a member of the Ku Klux Klan, and he never said that in his confirmation hearings. And there's an uproar, and he has to respond, and the question is, is he going to resign? So he goes before the cameras, and you can check out the clip on YouTube. There's actually a a, a movie of Justice Black, and he says, I did join the Klan. I later resigned. I never rejoined. That's all I have to say about the matter. And everyone says, bravo, you've done it, Justice Black. You've answered your critics, and we respectfully accept your Mm. response. But as it happened, not only was his legitimacy accepted, but he went on to become one of the greatest civil libertarian justices of the 20th century, the most beautiful defenders of free speech and of racial equality, perhaps haunted by his record. And when asked years later why he joined the Klan by a law clerk, he said, you know, if you'd been a senator in Alabama in the 20s, you'd have joined it too, but he tried as a justice to atone. So I think if Justice Black can go from becoming tarred to really becoming one of the great heroes of the court, I think Justice Gorsuch, if he's confirmed, will also be viewed as legitimate. But we start tarred. Well, Randy Barnett, since this issue of legitimacy comes up, uh, how do you respond to this, the the point that there's some, uh, will be a cloud over over him because of the way Merrick Garland was treated? Uh, I just think it's it's ridiculous and dangerous talk, and uh, I don't think we have enough time to relitigate the Merrick Garland situation. The selection of um, a pre- of, a, of a nominee for the Supreme Court is the president's to make, and it's the Senate's to decide whether or not they will move on that. There is there are countless numbers of judges and other political appointees where the Senate has declined to give its consent by failing to hold hearings and not having votes. And there's nothing in the Constitution that distinguishes Supreme Court justices from any other judicial nominee or executive branch nominee. And that is just a power that the Senate can exercise, and it will exercise it for political reasons the same way the president exercises his choice for political reasons, and that's how we get the judges we get. It's a political process. And what the Republicans in the Senate said was that that they're not going to move a candidate until there's an election in which the, the people get to decide about this particular seat. And there was an election. And had Hillary Clinton won, Merrick Garland would have been confirmed right away if Hillary Clinton had wanted him to be confirmed. And there would and it would have been confirmed by the lame duck Republicans uh, uh, based on what they had previously said. I'm not sure how that makes it better. But if you're going to say that this is a political power that the Senate can exercise, Mm -hmm. then you can't then turn around and say, oh, but Democrats should vote apolitically. No, if we're going to say that just who who comes on the Supreme Court is just about politics. And I don't say that, Ellie. But I'm saying I think that that's wrong. I think that that most people think that that's wrong. I don't think that this vote should go down 51-49. It's going to go down that way because of what the Republicans did um, vis-a-vis uh, Garland. Okay, we have to take a break. And by the way, didn't I tell you we would get some disagreement uh, on, on this program? <laughs> and, and we have to take another break. You are listening to Indivisible, Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. I'm Charlie Sykes. I'm here with Randy Barnett, Ellie Mastal, and Jeffrey Rosen. And we're going to talk about uh, originalism. We're going to talk about the accusations that judges side with corporations over the little guy. Is, is that really how judges should be evalu- uh, you know, evaluated? And what should uh, Democrats do? All of that is coming up after the break. Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com slash indivisible. 
This is Indivisible. The number to call is 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. This is Charlie Sykes at WNYC in New York. I'm talking with Randy Barnett from Georgetown Law School, Jeffrey Rosen of the National Constitution Center, Ellie Mastal, the editor of Above the Law, and the upcoming podcast, Persuade Me, right here from WNYC Studios. We're also taking your calls as well. I promised I was going to ask this earlier, but there's a lot of uh, you know terminology that gets thrown around at a time like this, uh, Randy Barnett, when people talk about, well, you know, how conservative is he? Is he an ideologue? Is he an originalist? So let's just go back to defining some of these terms. What do listeners need to know? What is an originalist in terms of constitutional interpretation? Well, an originalist is someone who believes that the meaning of the Constitution remains the same as when it was when it was enacted until it's properly changed and that judges are not empowered to change the meaning of the Constitution or meaning of the text. And neither are they empowered to do so when collaborating at the legislature, that the way to change the meaning of the text is by constitutional amendment. So that's, in a nutshell, what the, um, what the originalist position is, that uh, you look to the meaning of the text, and that meaning doesn't change until it's amended. Uh, Jeffrey Rosen, is Judge Gorsuch a, an originalist? He says that he is an originalist as well as a textualist, but he took pains to stress that he does not believe that the Constitution should mean the same thing that it does, uh, uh, that it did in the 18th century without taking account of changes in technology, for example. He several times cited the Supreme Court's decision in cases involving surveillance by global positioning system devices and said that we have to translate the text so it protects the same amount of privacy in the digital age as the framers took for granted in the 18th century. I was struck. The Democrats were really trying to make of the idea of faithless originalism, uh, a, a theme or a meme. And they were trying to cite examples where Justice Scalia, the leading originalist, had betrayed his principles and reached conclusions inconsistent with constitutional history. In particular, they were pressing Judge Gorsuch on Brown versus Board of Education, which, as many conservative as well as liberal scholars have conceded, was not originally intended to apply to school desegregation because lots of people stood up in 1866 and said, hey, don't worry about passing the 14th <laughs> Amendment. This won't apply to school desegregation. That was one area I do have to say where I think Judge Gorsuch was a little elusive. He just said not only that Brown is the law of the land, but that it was a correct interpretation as a matter of original understanding. And I think that's not entirely supported by the history. And the the Democrats tried valiantly to challenge on him. It's a very wonky point, but it's important. uh, And I want listeners to care about it, too, because if you believe, as Judge Gorsuch does believe, that judges should separate their political conclusions from their constitutional ones, then you have to be willing to reach results in constitutional cases uh, that clash with your political Mm -hmm. views when the original understanding compels it. Brown is the big elephant in the room, to use Gorsuch's words, and he, he, he didn't squarely address Justice Scalia's inconsistency here. I have to finally say, I had the incredible chance to ask Justice Scalia about Brown and original understanding during a very convivial dinner a few years ago, and I said, you know, everyone agrees it's not consistent with original understanding. What do you make of it? And he paused for a second and then threw back his head and laughed and said, you know what? No theory is perfect. <laughs> that was, that was I, his answer. Ellie Mustall, I, I, I take it from reading your work that you're not a fan of originalism. I, I, I am not. Um, I am not a fan of originalism. I am not a fan of textualism. I am not a fan of really caring what 18th century slaveholders had to say about my rights. Um, Gorsuch, I thought very interestingly in his Brown v. Board of Ed discussion, uh, tried to say that it was actually Justice Harlan 
in dissent in Plessy v. Ferguson that got the original intent of the framers right in dissent. And it's just a shame that it took the court 100 years to catch up to the real original intent. I, 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 I don't find that. I don't find any of those arguments particularly compelling, which isn't to say that I don't think that the text is important. I think the text is important. I think the text is where you start. I think it's the starting point for any conversation about what the law says. I just happen to think that that text needs to be understood and interpreted. So it's in kind a- of like a suggestion? No, I think it's I, I think it's a suggestion. <laughs> it's, a, it's a really good guideline. But, but I think that that text needs to be interpreted and understood in the modern context where black people and women have rights. And we can then go from there. I thought Amy Klobuchar actually did a really good job of kind of highlighting this point when she brought up that originally and even at the time of the 14th Amendment, women were not considered to be part of this great experiment. Okay, now, Randy, I want you to respond to this. And I'm, I'm, I'm not putting words in your mouth, Ellie. I'm, I'm actually reading what you said. This yeah. Constitution, yo, it's a racist, sexist document that is totally cool with women and minorities getting screwed if enough white men say so. That is um, what I wrote. So, yeah. uh, Randy Barnett, uh, you have a different view of the Constitution? Well, we- well, before you read that, I was going to say I disagreed with everything that Ellie just said. Um, I also disagree a little bit with what Jeff Rosen said. Let me start there. Jeff, I don't think just, just, just Judge Gorsuch said that the meaning of the Constitution has to change with changing times. I think he said the application of the original meaning is going to have to take account of changing times. And I don't know of any originalist who doesn't agree with him about that. So originalism is not a bogeyman once you understand that the meaning of the text is one thing and how it applies to particular facts and circumstances is a second thing. So that, that was one quick point. Secondly, with respect to the original intent, which which Ellie keeps referring to, uh, and whatever the intent, and I think just Judge Gorsuch was very good on this. He says we're not interested in the secret intentions, or for that matter, even the public intentions of the people that wrote the document. We're interested in the text of what they said. And there is absolutely no question that the text of the 14th Amendment, when it refers to persons, refers to women and blacks, and when it refers to citizens, refers to women and to blacks. There is, it is actually a calumny on the people who wrote the 14th Amendment to suggest that the 14th Amendment did not protect equally women and blacks. It is to the great discredit of the Supreme Court um, that it did not follow the 14th Amendment in protecting women and blacks for a variety of reasons, the same way it did not protect Japanese-American citizens in World War II. And that was not done necessarily in World War II. It wasn't done on originalist grounds. And the Supreme Court has failed us for many, many reasons. And I agree with Judge Gorsuch that Justice Harlan, in his dissenting opinion in Plessy, is right. And if Plessy is wrong, then Brown is right. If Plessy is wrong on originalist grounds, which I believe it is, then that makes Brown right on originalist grounds, as I believe it is and as, as constitutional scholars have shown. And by the way, saying I don't buy it in response to a systemic evidentiary support for the proposition that Brown has correctly decided, just saying, I don't buy it, is not an argument. Can I respond in the spirit of disagreement? Yeah, Um, definitely, in the spirit of disagreement. um, uh, It is absolutely not true that uh, Justice Harlan's dissent said that the 14th Amendment was intended to apply to schools. Hmm. He said that it was intended to apply to civil rights, not political or social rights. And there is no doubt, because Michael McConnell, the leading conservative scholar of the 14th Amendment, has conceded it, that the people who proposed the 14th Amendment did not think that the right to go to schools was a civil right. And therefore, it is quite clear 
as McConnell, in his article, Originalism and the Desegregation Decisions, unequivocally concedes that if you're a one-step specific originalist and just asking what did the people who proposed the amendment think, and and probably those who ratified it uh, think as well, would not have thought that it applied to schools. This is a tremendous gaping hole for originalists not to concede what Justice Scalia did concede to me. I want to let Ellie jump back in here. I I just want to say, put it like this, the Constitution is not a gospel. It is a working legal document. And as a working legal document, it has to be applied by men and women. So when I look at how to interpret it, Obviously, I think starting with the text is the right call. But after that, I think we need to look at how it's going to be applied in the real world situation to men and women as as it happens in modern society. That's my main argument. Uh, OK, Randy Burnett. Well, first of all, I don't know if Ellie doesn't want to pay attention to what people in the 19th, 18th century said about anything, which is what he earlier said. I don't understand why he thinks we ought to start with the text at all, because the text is what they said. So one position doesn't really cohere with the other. With respect to what Jeff said, in Plessy versus Ferguson, the court completely deferred to, uh, in one, in basically two sentences, to the Louisiana state legislature's assertion um, that it had to segregate streetcars because it was necessary for the preservation of social order. There was no basis for that claim. The court demanded no basis for that claim. What is at issue at Plessy is the same thing that is issue at issue at Brown, and that is the rationality of distinctions uh, that are made on the basis of race. That is what the Fourteenth Amendment made unconstitutional. That is what Plessy failed to enforce, and that is what Brown successfully enforced. Okay. If you want to, okay. I just want to say, okay. if you want to write a new constitution where minorities and women get a say at that constitutional convention, sign me up. I would go there tomorrow to write that new document. I just want to point out that Randy is moving to a level of abstraction that's more consistent with liberal constitutionalism than originalism, and they did not believe that all racial classifications were suspect, although Plessy was undoubtedly wrong when it was decided, but only those affecting civil rights, and they didn't think the right to go to school was a civil right. This seems like a wonky point, but it is really a crucial test of originalism, and it's disappointing that both Judge Gorsuch and Randy, who's one, you know, our leading originalist, he's fantastic, can't just concede that Brown is very hard to reconcile on originalist grounds. Uh, let's go to well, the. Okay, you know, I get Brandy. I, get, I, get, I, get, I, I can't. Get and I won't. And in fact, um, it was Jeff that it was Jeff that, that uh, invoked uh, Michael McConnell's authority. Um, and Michael McConnell uh, has what, at this to date, is the, the definitive argument about why it was that the the members of Congress that drafted the Fourteenth Amendment and rat- and proposed it to the states believed that um, uh, school desegregation was something that was uh, unconstitutional and something that they had a power under Section Five of the Fourteenth Amendment to prohibit. Um, and and Jeff is as familiar with Michael McConnell's argument, historical argument, and evidence on this as I am. Okay, let's go to the phone. We have a lot of people who've been waiting, and this has been a fascinating conversation. Let's go out to uh, uh, the Midwest. Uh, St. Paul, Minnesota. Abby from St. Paul, you're on Indivisible. Good evening. Good evening. I'm really concerned about uh, a conservative judge who says that he sits there and he's only going to consider precedent, who is actually making new law, and the entire issue is Hobby Lobby, where he gave rights to privately held for-profit corporations that they could have religious identities and deny their employees access to birth control. This is really upsetting to me, and it's novel. It's a novel concept, although it does follow Citizens United. 
and you guys haven't addressed it yet. Okay, well let's let's address it right now. Um, let's go back to uh, Je- Jeffrey Rose and let's, let's talk about the the Hobby Lobby case. Uh, define it for our, our listeners that where uh, basically says that a, that a private business does have, in fact, uh, religious liberty rights. Yes, you describe it well, and it's great that the listener called our attention to it because it's such an important case. And Judge Gorsuch was part of the lower court opinion, later affirmed by the Supreme Court, that said that a closely held corporation, in other words, a a group of uh, a small group of corporate owners, do have religious liberty rights that in that case were able to trump, as it were, Mm -hmm. the uh, necessity to obey the Affordable Care Act uh, because the Religious Freedom Restoration Act required compelling reasons before you could deny people's religious uh, liberty rights. The whole question in Hobby Lobby is, would Judge Gorsuch defend corporate religious liberty rights more broadly than the Supreme Court, than Justice Kennedy? And the caller rightly invokes Citizens United, which seemed to suggest that the First Amendment rights of corporations are indistinguishable from those of natural persons. Judge Gorsuch's opinion really stressed that it was a closely held corporation. In other words, it wasn't Apple or, yeah, it wouldn't be Exxon, it wouldn't be General Motors. No, no, no. And that's the whole question. It it makes no sense historically or analytically to say that General Motors or Apple or Exxon has the natural rights that come from God and not government, according to Jefferson, to worship according to the dictates of conscience. Maybe it's more plausible to say that a group of five small business owners have that right. The Supreme Court opinion by Justice Alito was a little imprecise about exactly how uh, broadly a corporation should be defined. But Judge Gorsuch, who did write quite expansively about the need for corporate religious rights, stressed that he was talking about a closely held corporation. I'm going to slightly defend uh, conservative justices that I disagree with here. Um, Insofar as this, one of the issues in Hobby Lobby is that the conservative, it's not a First Amendment case, the conservative justices were trying to follow the Religious Freedom and Restoration Act, which is an act of Congress. One of the reasons why our courts have become such a contentious issue is because we keep punting issues into the courts that maybe should be decided by Congress. I think that the Religious Freedom and Restoration Act is a bad law, and I think that there should be activism and organization and ability and an ability to try to get Congress to overturn that law, because if Congress overturns that law, then Alito and Gorsuch and Roberts and them don't have anything to hang that particular decision on. They're somewhat forced into making that decision because Congress has passed this broad-based law. Now, so they're following the law. Well, no. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <That clears throat> they're following what they think the law is. If I was on the court, obviously, I think that I think that the law that Congress passed should not have been able to impact somebody's access to health care. Okay, Randy Barnett. Well, first of all, I want to thank Ellie for making that clarification about RIFRA. He's absolutely right about that. That was a great point, Ellie. Again, I want to agree with you about that. Um, uh, With respect to Citizens United, the New York Times um, is going to be very disappointed uh, that they don't have uh, First Amendment rights uh, and that New York Times v. Sullivan was wrongly decided because the New York Times, uh, I would like to let the caller know, is a for-profit corporation. And yet they assert First Amendment rights all the time, and it is one of the landmark cases that Judge Gorsuch affirmed as one of the landmark cases that he would be inclined to follow, New York Times versus Sullivan. I I would just like to point out here, as the one non-lawyer on on this panel from a political point of view, you know, when when, um, I was trying to figure out, you know, why did evangelical Christians vote so overwhelmingly for Donald Trump, you know, when, when obviously he would not represent, I would say, conservative Christian values. This issue of religious liberty played much more powerfully than I think a lot of people recognize. That that a lot of progressives need to understand that that the the, the backlash was not so much against 
even even the gay marriage ruling. But it was this sense that you had the left at ramming speed and this pushback that made this a binary choice for a lot of folks. Let me see if I can fit in one more caller here. Robin from uh, Lafayette Hills, Pennsylvania. You are on Indivisible. Good evening, Robin. Hi. Um, I was just going to make a comment regarding the Mayor Garland incident and the um, opinion uh, that he that uh, Gorsh, Gorsh would be a illegitimate mm-hmm. um, justice. Um, I blame the Democrats, number one, for not making a bigger stink over um, Mayor Garland and the U.S. citizens, number one. But two, also, all of Congress, as far as I'm concerned, it shouldn't have been politicized, and it's the con- it's in the Constitution. The Congress, it's their job to. Okay, so what should what do you consent. what do you what do you think they should do? Robin. Well, I think it's too late for the Democrats to make a stink now, and I think to Congress, when they're not doing their job, they should be impeached, just like the president. Burn it down. All right. so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, Robin wants to burn it down. Okay, well, let, let's let, let's go to this, this 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 point. What what should Democrats do right now, uh, Ellie Mistal? I, I think you you seem to be suggesting that they um, force the nuclear option by Republicans. And look, for if you're not going to go to the mattresses over a lifetime appointment, this Gorsuch is going to be on the court long after Trump has faded right. into the sunset. If you're not going to go to the mattresses for this, then what are you fighting for? So, yeah, I think... How about the next seat? (laughs) Well, well, then they can... So here's the issue, right? Uh, Conservatives are threatening to use the nuclear option to take away the filibuster if Democrats filibuster this nomination. Some progressives are saying, well, we should wait for the next seat to do that. Well, then they'll just do it then. Hmm. I don't know that... McConnell might be bluffing. And one of the things that Republicans have generally been better at is calling the Democrats bluff. They did it with Garland. It's time for the Democrats, I think, to call okay. the Republicans. So, Randy Barnett, if you were giving advice to Democrats in the Senate, what would you suggest they do? I would say they ought to vote their conscience, that judicial philosophy is much a part of the qualifications to be a judge as ability and schooling and all the rest. And so if you disagree with the judicial philosophy of a Supreme Court nominee, you should vote against them, just as I would urge Republicans to do the same with respect to Democrats. But I do believe this ought to be done by a majority vote and not by a supermajority vote that doesn't exist in the Constitution. Gentlemen, thank you so much. We're going to have to leave it there for tonight. Randy Barnett, Ellie Mistal, Jeffrey Rosen, thanks for joining me. Randy Barnett's a professor of legal theory at Georgetown. Jeffrey Rosen's the president of the National Constitution Center. Ellie Mistal is an editor of Above the Law. That's all for Indivisible tonight. Tomorrow night. Minnesota Public Radio's Kerry Miller explores why voters so often choose candidates that are at odds with their own economic self-interest. I'm Charlie Sykes, and assuming that we're all still around, we'll be back next Wednesday. If you like the Indivisible podcast, rate and review it, and tell your friends. And thanks for listening.